And I'm currently on call to artist Kat Freeze to talk about her project Walk Down in Lockdown, created for the Spirit of 21 online festival, a spin-off of the annual Samantha Festival, which normally takes place in Candos. Kat, do we have you on the line? Yes, hello. Hello, good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, good morning. I'm quite well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's obviously an exciting day here for some lucky of us in Sydney. A um, few things I'm looking forward to be able to do from today on. Uh, what about you? What are the things that you miss the most during this lockdown and that you're looking forward to coming back to? Oh, there's quite a long list, isn't there? I'm I'm really missing seeing my art friends and the arts community. I'm missing going to galleries and talks. And I'm also really missing being able to go to the beach and to the mountains and just feel like I can explore further away and get out of Sydney. Mm. And what kept you sane in the last couple of months? What oh. was this thing that was keeping you healthy? Yes, I think keeping in touch with people has been important, but also um, going for walks and exercise and I'm lucky to have a lovely dog who I can walk with as well um, and he's been very good company. So walking's been very important and being able to get out and see the sky and the trees and whatever whatever sort of nature is around. Mm. And this benefit of walking that you have discovered, I'm sure not just because of COVID, but even before, is a theme of your next work, which you're developing as part of the online Spirit of 21 festival. It's called Walk Down in Lockdown, and it is a sort of a guided community action in mindful walking. How would you describe the project to us? What is it and who is it intended for? Well, it's really um, like a taster, a short experience of walking meditation. So the idea is that anybody can do it. You don't have to have any experience of meditation. You can join online and um, I'll be walking people through how to do a walking meditation and I'll be giving people the tools so if they want to then continue it themselves, they can keep going later or, or come back to it again. Mm. And uh, how did you come to walking meditation in the first place? So what inspired this project and how does it fit within your overall practice? Uh, well, I've been very interested in walking meditation for quite a long time. I think I was probably first introduced to it when I was studying with the artist Lindy Lee at Sydney College of the Arts. She's quite a well-known Zen Buddhist artist. She had an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art last summer and she took um, her group of postgraduate students together to do a walking meditation. So I think that was the first one I did and then I researched it more and read quite a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh and how his practice of walking meditation and how he takes big groups doing walking meditations on retreats and um, he's a fascinating Buddhist teacher. He's originally from Vietnam And he now has a number of Buddhist communities all over the world. And some of the biggest ones are in France and they're called Plum Village. And I was fortunate enough to do a retreat there in the south of France. And um, it was amazing. People from all over the world were there. It's, you know, it seems quite um, unusual and strange, I think, given where we are at the moment, not able to move at all. But it was so um, 
international, so many languages, so many ages of people. And there were some really beautiful experiences of hundreds of people walking together in silence, um, following the monks and nuns. It was, it was really a very special experience. Mm. And one of the things that walking is about, it is the exercise in embodiment. And in your overall practice, you are interested in embodied experiences as a way to return to environmental consciousness. And in your biography, which I find on your website, you speak about the desire to counteract the disconnectedness and apathy by nurturing care and compassion for all beings and for the earth. What, in your view, causes this disconnectedness and apathy, and what are some of the ways to counteract this? Yes, I mean, I certainly feel this sense of disconnection quite often and sense of hopelessness, I think, as well. Um, and I, I suppose some of the things that cause it are um, feeling isolated, feeling this drive to be... That, that we are alone and this understanding of ourselves as individuals rather than as connected to each other and to our surroundings and the ecosystems that we live in. But I think there are quite good tools, I think, to use to reconnect, to feel these connections with other people and with other creatures and with the ecosystems that we, that we live in and move through and that we're really kind of inextricably part of. Um, and to be more aware through our senses of where we are and the, the present time that we're experiencing and sharing with, with everything in our surroundings. So I think one of the most important senses to remember, which is probably the easiest one to overlook, is the sense of touch. Mm -hmm. And the sense of touch is so powerful in terms of connecting. Um, to touch a tree when you're walking past it, to really feel the ground under your feet as you're walking along, to feel the air on your face and um, as you're breathing, as it's going through your nose and into your lungs and you're exhaling back out into the atmosphere. This sense of touch can be a very powerful way of reconnecting and being present and understanding that we're part of a much bigger whole. Mm. I love one thing that Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Buddhist monk that you're mentioning, says he says that we should walk as if kissing the earth. Yes, I love that um, understanding and that way of thinking about walking, that each time your foot is touching the ground, you're kissing the earth, and that this way of connecting and reconnecting with the earth is a really important way that we can shift how we think about how we exist on the earth, on the ground, how we move through life, and to sort of and bring this, this sense of and this understanding of compassion to these interactions. Mm. I also feel that this disconnectedness comes through digital technologies that really kind of robotize our bodies, I guess, uh, making us more robotic. And uh, we forget all these sensual inputs that come from the world to us. Um, yes, so, yeah. I, I agree. I think there's a lot of sort of distancing that happens through digital technologies. In some ways, they connect us, but only on an intellectual level, not in an embodied way. So... Mm. And you spoke how during the lockdown, uh, one thing that kept you physically and mentally healthy was walking. Has walking been part of your daily ritual forever or for a long time? Or has that been something that came out from this experience of COVID and uh, physical distancing and isolation? Mm. 
I would like to say that I've always loved walking, but there's certainly been periods of time when I haven't been doing very much walking. And I usually, my mental health usually suffers as a consequence. Um, but my, my family loved walking and bushwalking and exploring, and they were great adventurers and travellers. So there would always be a lot of walking. So I think I grew up with walking, but I've certainly gone through periods when I've stopped walking so much and just gotten out of the habit of walking. And I think also when you're so busy, particularly um, working online on the computers, on the screens, it can be quite easy to go, oh, I don't have time to go for a walk. And I, I, I had, have discovered that if I do, when I do fall into that trap, it, it is uh, definitely to my detriment. So I, I love walking. I really enjoy it. And and at the moment, I'm very lucky to have a dog to look after. So um, we both enjoy going for walks together. And it's a good prompt to keep up with the daily walking routine. Mm. And do you walk through urban settings? Or do you go into the bush? Do you maybe have the same route that you repeat daily? Or do you change that? Well, I think during lockdown, it's been quite similar walking patterns. Um, I've been able to move during lockdown and come and live with my mother. So we've been walking together and she is very, she's been very um, industrious and in researching all of the possible bushwalks in her area within the five kilometers. So I think we've probably done all of the bushwalks <laughs> within this area now, um, which has been lovely. But Generally, I think um, as part of my daily routine, my morning walk is usually to a park and the park is usually the destination. Where I'm usually living is in the inner west on Gadigal, Wongal land. And I would usually walk to Sydney Park, which is a beautiful park to walk around. And there's lovely ponds and water features with lots of birds and sometimes turtles and eels. So it does become a little bit of an urban nature spotting walk as well. Yeah, that's been my daily routine, Sydney Park, and I'm really looking yes. forward to expanding that horizon because as beautiful as it is after three months, I'm really craving something else. Yeah, yes, you're definitely ready for a little bit more. A little bit more, mm. yes. And many artists uh, in the history have spoken how walking is in some way productive for them because they would come up with ideas or clarify some existing thoughts while they walk. Is this your experience? Do ideas come to you when you walk? Yes, definitely. I think I probably do some of my best thinking when I'm walking. Um, the other time I do a lot of thinking is probably at like 2am in the morning when I can't sleep. But I, I much prefer <laughs> the, the walking the walking thinking. And when I'm trying to develop a, a work for a particular project or if I'm writing a piece, um, and when I was writing my PhD, particularly walking was so important then, that just the, the movement of walking and kind of the steady rhythm of it is quite soothing in a way, but also active. So your mind shifts into a different gear and it feels like different ideas can kind of settle or bubble up or formulate in a way which they don't do so much when I'm sitting right in front of the computer trying to type into the document. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that's a beautiful writer, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a book on a history of walking called The Wanderlust. And she says that walking is a way of grounding one's thoughts. And she also speaks about it, which I loved, uh, that walking is closest to doing nothing, but without having guilt. That it's uh, this combination <laughs> of work, but also idleness. And I can definitely relate to that. 
And then one other thing that you mentioned, uh, which resonated with me, is you said I'm sitting in front of the computer and I'm saying to myself, I don't have enough time to go for a walk. But then when mm. we do and we take that time, it always feels like we actually gain time by doing it. Yes, I think we do. Um, I love that book by Rebecca Solnit. Um, actually, I think I love everything that Rebecca Solnit's written. Yes. But that book particularly struck a chord with me as well. Mm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it, that we do gain time by making the space and time to go for a walk because it just changes how we're thinking about the tasks that we need to get done and the way that we approach them. It, in a way, it does reflect the practice of mindfulness very succinctly that the more mindful you are about what you're doing, the easier it is to be grounded and focused and move through tasks without becoming stressed or anxious about what you're trying to get done. Mm. Um, so I think um, particularly like uh, walking meditation, it's very, the mindfulness of that is very helpful and I find that it works really well for me when I'm feeling a bit anxious or stressed or agitated and I can't sit down and do a proper sitting meditation because I've just got got too much nervous energy but to do a walking meditation I can do that and fall into that rhythm of breathing and the momentum of the walk and I can even just do a small circle in whatever room that I'm in do this walking mm. meditation for a few minutes and find that I can calm down and focus yeah, and uh, I think Rebecca Solnit also speaks about this harmonization between body and mind that happens because of this rhythmic action of placing one foot and then the other on the ground. Uh, there is this rhythm established that uh, maybe relaxes us or detoxifies many stresses that we have through our day-to-day -day lives. Um, yes, I think so. And um, there's something... Um very important, I think, in this sort of rhythm of the breathing and the walking and this, um, like you're saying, it, it detoxifies you. It's quite relaxing. It's almost like um, if you're holding a, a baby and trying to get it to go to sleep, you, you can like rock it or put it in the pram or the stroller and take it for a walk. And that rhythm of moving can be very soothing mm -hmm. and just, just calms things down. Exactly. And another thing I was contemplating during the lockdown, because walking has been a dear subject to me and, and practice as well. And then I read somewhere, and I think it also comes from Buddhist practices, because in the lockdown, many people confronted the fact that maybe they didn't have a range to walk through. Maybe they didn't have a luxury of Sydney Park or something like yeah. that. And then I read somewhere that one can walk miles in a circle. And that that's actually a Buddhist practice, that sometimes they just walk the same route in a circle and it can be a circle of a very small size, but you can actually walk miles in that way. So it doesn't have to be forward towards a destination in any way. Yeah, so it's quite fascinating, isn't it? This um, sense that we already have everything at our fingertips. We don't actually have to go a long way away to find these experiences that you can achieve this sense of freedom by walking in a small circle. You can walk miles, even if you don't leave, leave the room that you're in. Thich Nhat Hanh and some of his followers they were protesting the Vietnam War and they were often imprisoned for protesting the war and for trying to help refugees. And there's some beautiful stories from his um, monks and nuns and himself about doing walking meditations in jail cells, often at night so they didn't disturb anybody else. And the sense of freedom that they found in doing these walking meditations in a jail cell. And I have to say, 
I am inspired by that thought and also somewhat terrified. I don't, I don't quite know how I would cope in such a confined space for a long period of time. Mm. Um, even though I, I suppose many of us having gone through quarantine and lockdown have had a taste of what it means mm. to have your freedom curtailed in that sense and not being able to move very much or travel very far. Yeah, and it was terrifying and very unhealthy. So, yeah. Mm. You're on ESA Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Simpoesis, and I'm on call to artist Kat Fries, and we are talking about her project Walk Down in Lockdown, a participatory community action in mindful walking, which she's facilitating as part of Spirit of 21, an online spin-off, the Samantha Festival, which normally takes uh, place in Candace. So, Kat, your project Walk Down in Lockdown will take place online, as I just mentioned, on a digital platform, and each participant will walk with you remotely from their own individual spaces. Tell us a bit, how do you envision running these sessions? Oh, yes, we've had a very interesting time developing this project. And the plan is for people to join the Zoom session from their mobile phones and to either have headphones to listen to what I'm saying or to turn um, up the volume on their phone. Because the idea is that when we are walking together, people will be having holding their phone in their hand with the camera facing the ground. And you'd have your arm by your side and quite loose because you need to try to re- remember to relax your shoulders and your neck and your whole body, really. You want to walk in quite a, a loose, relaxed way and then hold onto your phone quite gently so the camera is looking at the ground. So rather than staring at the screen, everyone's going to be listening to me talking to them about walking as they are walking. And all the cameras on the Zoom session will be looking at the ground that people are walking over. Mm-hmm. So we did an experiment with this with a small group of people. And it was a very interesting way of connecting with each other because we felt this sense of connection and yet all walking in different places. And then um, I think we're quite used to all staring at, at the camera and at the screen for Zoom meetings and things like that. But it's quite different, I think, to not be looking at the camera and the camera just to be looking at the ground. And that's what's appearing, I guess, on the recording or on people who can't join on the walk but just want to join online and have a look at how it's going. So it, it is quite a, a playful way of working with this sort of technology. So you're not suggesting that we put mobile phones in our pockets, but actually to have them facing the ground would be an idea. Yeah, just just to hold it quite gently in your hand so Mm. the camera's looking at the ground. Mm. Yeah, and and also when you're doing a walking meditation, you're not really supposed to be looking around you a lot. Mm. The, The easiest way to fall into that sort of mindful meditative state is if you just look about a meter and a half in front of you where your feet are going. Um, and sort of kind of with a soft gaze, so you sort of half close your eyes a little bit. Um, That way you shouldn't trip over anything, but you're not too distracted by looking too far away. Mm. So you're looking where your feet are about to go, Mm. and you're quite focused on that movement of each footstep. Whereas if we're, I guess when we're walking normally, we often look up, we look at the horizon, we look at the sky, we look into the distance, and that can often... um, kind of pull our mental focus away from the present moment because you're thinking into the future or into the past. And it's kind of an interesting correlation with how we use our sense of sight, with how we think. And usually it's to do with 
not focusing on the present, but thinking of other things that are of concern to us or that are distractions for us, of um, looking away. Mm. And also, I was reading somewhere now that you're speaking about vision, how when we are stressed, our uh, vision zooms. It's like our breath shortens and our vision zooms. So opening and softening the gaze, as you were saying, is also a way to de-stress and to deepen your breath at the same time, which I, I found that very fascinating because it speaks also about this gazing into the horizon is that opening of the vision. And it explains why that is so uh, relaxing to most of people. Mm. Yes, that's very interesting. I love this research about how interconnected our senses and our experiences and our mental state and it is I mean it's something that I've certainly been missing is being able to look, go to the ocean and look mm -hmm. at that vast horizon of the ocean meeting the sky and that's expansiveness and it's um, sometimes I feel like when you can look out to the horizon of the ocean meeting the sky or the mountains meeting the sky and have that sense of distance it's like an opening up you can take a deep breath and feel like you're also opening up as you're looking at this big space in front of you. And it can be very relaxing and like a sense of relief. Mm. Are you envisioning that these participants in uh, your project Walkdown in Lockdown will be walking indoors or outdoors? And uh, how will you adjust your instructions to accommodate for these uh, two quite different experiences? Or do they need to be seen as different? Um... I suppose um, to some extent it depends on the weather. Today it's raining and it's quite cold outside. So perhaps people will be walking inside a bit more if the weather is like this. But then we will have people joining us from all over the country and possibly even overseas. So people will be having very different experiences in different places. I'm hoping that I will be able to walk outside in bare feet and I will just be walking a circle just to help me focus on what I'm saying. But really, you can walk anywhere. I think the idea of trying to walk somewhere where you don't have too many distractions so that you don't have to cross over the road, let's say, because you'll need to um, shift your gaze and your attention to do that safely. If you're walking somewhere where there aren't too many distractions, that's mm -hmm. always a good idea. And it's also easier if there aren't too many other people around but you can do it around other people as well because you're going quite slowly usually. So it's quite easy to um, negotiate all of these if there's any sort of obstacles or other things that come up. Mm. And the walk is actually going to be relatively short. I think it's only 10 minutes. Yes, it is very short. Or, or twice in a weekend. Yes, yeah, so there'll be two sessions of 10 minutes on the Friday and on the Saturday. But... Um, I guess the, the idea is that it gives you the tools to be able to do this sort of mindful walking yourself. And even after 10 minutes, I think you can feel that shift and you can feel this sense that you could keep walking for quite a long time. But it's um, relatively simple. So I think it, it, it will be a nice break from the online festival. Mm -hmm. And it will also be a sort of thing that will be quite easy for people to continue themselves later on whenever they would like to. Yes. 
And uh, just to let uh, the listeners know, in case they would like to book for this session, they should go to cementa.com.au and there you will find the session called Walk Down in Lockdown, which is the one that we are speaking about on this program. And I'm talking to Aris Katfries, who will be facilitating this session. So if you go to cementa.com.au and you click on the name Katfries in one of the boxes, you will be able to register for these sessions. And they're taking place on Friday this week and Saturday this week, I believe. Is that correct, Kat? That's correct, yes. yes. And I guess the other thing is if people can join the session on their mobile phone rather than their laptop or computer, that way they'll be more free to move and can also assist with um, filming mm-hmm. so they can hold the, the phone in their hand and have the camera pointing mm-hmm. at the ground. Um, I guess there was one other consideration in terms of where you're walking and how you're walking. We did discover when we did our trial version of this that some people started at home, so they had their home Wi-Fi as their connection, and then they walked around the block or down the street, and their home Wi-Fi dropped out, and they needed to switch to their mobile yes. data. Mm-hmm. So they had to stop. They had to come out of the session to go and do that, and then come back in again. So um, they said that was very disruptive. So yeah. our recommendation is that if you're going to move away from your Wi-Fi signal, then it's better if you can start on your phone data so you don't have to make that shift. Yeah, exactly, especially given that it's 10 minutes. So by the time you log in, log out, it takes about two minutes of the whole experience. Yes, exactly. You lose quite a lot of time. You do, yeah. So maybe something to put in instructions in the reminder for those who have registered how, yes. how best yes. to experience it. Um, coming back to uh, this uh, thing that we spoke about, how when we walk, ideas tend to come to us or we clarify some thoughts that we already had. And uh, one thing that I tend to do when I walk, well, not always because I like to have free hands, but if I'm using walk as a productive tool in a way, then I like to take my notepad with me so I can actually jot those ideas down because otherwise I just get a bit stressed by needing to retain them. Do you do something like that? Do you carry your uh, pen and paper with you or maybe a phone that you put things in? Yes, sometimes I do. Sometimes I carry my phone. It's got a little um, note system in it that I can I can jot down some notes. I think um, increasingly I'm starting to do that. It depends on what the project is, I guess, and how immersed in it I'm feeling. Sometimes there'll be enough focus that will carry through to remember what I've or what the sort of solutions that I've come up with when I've been walking or the ideas. But sometimes it's very useful to write them down. I know some people do like voice memos. Yes. Which I think is quite a nice idea. And um kind of interesting as well because often the way that we would express something vocally, how we might um say it, is different to how we would write it down. So depending on what the project is, that can actually make quite a difference. Mm. And what is your working methodology overall? Are you someone who buys a notepad for each project that comes to mind? Are you drawing, making notes? Um, And do you come back to, if you do that, do you come back to the notepads that you had 10 years ago to review them? (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? I feel I am quite messy. I have a big uh, sketchbook in my studio where I kind of draw out some ideas for installations and things, but they're not really in any particular order. So I do find that occasionally I'll be flipping through there looking for a blank page and I'll see something from eight or ten years ago and go, oh, I remember that project, just looking at that sketch. Mm. But I think um, 
I take a lot of photographs and I had to take a lot of photographs in my studio. A lot of my artwork at the moment involves growing sculptures with mushrooms and mycelium and wood chip. And um, it's very interesting how they change over time and mushrooms grow quite fast. So I will let usually take quite a few photos every time I visit the studio so that I have a, have a sense of how they're growing and changing. So I have a lot of photographs, I suppose. That's one way that I keep track of my artwork. And then I'm also quite, I'm interested in sharing what I'm doing. So I often, I try to keep my website up to date. Mm -hmm. So there's usually quite a lot of information on there about previous projects. And that can be a very useful way mm. for, for myself as well as for other people. But I, I, I will go back to my website if I'm trying to look up something from the past and try and pin it down yes in that way mm. and now you're touching upon your other practice part of your practice that is not about walking but is about creating sculptures and installations and on, also working with the materials that change uh, and evolve through time and we also spoke about your interest in buddhism and how your practice is underpinned by mindfulness and meditation practices and by concepts of impermanence interconnection and compassion so i was wanting to ask you to elaborate a bit on how this concept of impermanence in particular is present in your installation and sculptural works oh thank you that's a very big question and one that really excites me I mean I really enjoy making artwork that changes and that isn't permanent and I often use natural materials I've done a lot of work with beeswax and tree roots and more recently I've been doing a lot of work with mushrooms I like to use mushrooms that are edible types of mushrooms, so usually oyster mushrooms or reishi mushrooms. And reishi is a mushroom that's traditionally used in tea. It has quite a few health benefits, so you'd usually soak it in tea. So they're, they're quite, I mean, they're, they're relatively um, straightforward in that sense, although there's lots of amazing mushrooms out there in the world and, and so many that haven't even been named or classified yet, which I find very exciting. But um, the impermanence, I think I like to make work that isn't really intended to last forever. And I think that has a, a sense of, I guess, reflection on the reality of what it is to live and to be in the world. It's that everything is always changing and nothing really lasts. Everything's always shifting on different scales of time from one form to another. You know, even looking at a mountain, the mountain changes over time. It erodes away. There's um, geothermal forces at work underneath it that might change its shape over a long period of time. Mm. And I just find it fascinating to try and work with this sense of time, and not in the way that we need to leave a mark on the earth, mm -hmm. but more in a sense that everything we do interacts with what's going on around it and in that way everything is always changing. Mm. And I assume that when we work with the agency of materials and with materials that will deteriorate over time it also leads to an egoless process in making? <laughs> uh, I'd like to think so but um, I guess to one extent it, it does have this um, sense of letting go. Mm -hmm. In another way, I get very fond and very attached of different projects that I'm working on. So 
it's interesting this sort of changing relationship with the materials and I guess with myself as well and sometimes I will be able to take elements from a previous artwork and incorporate them into a new one I have quite a few oyster mushrooms from previous sculptures that grew within the sculptures and then dried out afterwards and I've been able to preserve those either in a glass vessel or by dipping them in beeswax so they're quite well preserved and then I can use them again in another work so it's kind of I guess a sense of continuation as well. Mm -hmm. Recycling. Yes. Another uh, term that I found on your website, and it intrigued me, and it's part of the thesis that you wrote, your PhD thesis, uh, which is titled Touching Impermanence. And you use this term called sentient metaflow, which sounds beautiful. Can you uh, explain to us a bit what does it signify? Oh, (laughs) yes, I love that term. I think... um, I heard the term matter flow and this sense of all matter, all material, is flowing from one state to another in this constant state of change and renewal and things are shifting from one to another. And I wanted to bring into that understanding of shift and flow of materials and matter this, uh, I guess, sense of compassion and connection. So it's not like us standing to the side in in lab coats, watching the world moving and changing, but actually being connected and part of it because our bodies Mm. are moving and changing and absorbing our surroundings and changing our surroundings and also, you know, shedding cells and breathing out into our surroundings as well. So we're very much part of this matter flow. And I think something that we need to keep in mind is this, I guess, sense of compassion for what's going on. We're part of it and we need to care about it. We can't just stand off to the side and try and view it objectively all the time because that means that we think whatever happens doesn't really affect us. So the idea of sentient matter flow, I was trying to um, work with this sense of sort of interconnection and compassion with all of the change that is going on in our surroundings and within ourselves and how that is inextricably linked. And if we can feel or generate more of a sense of care and compassionate response to that, then we will care more for the world and the impact that humans are having on the world and the climate crisis. Mm. Also, when uh, one creates work that uh, is not intended to last forever, it also contracts this capitalist need to own things, to possess them. So one thing that artists who work in the same uh, process uh, like you speak about is that their own works can't be bought and owned, can't be possessed. Is that something that features in your work as well? Um, I sometimes sell work, but I don't make it the main goal of the reason for making the artwork because I do work with these materials that that are quite unstable and that will shift and change. So sometimes if I do sell a work that has beeswax or dried mushrooms or something like this in it, I will explain to whoever's buying it, you know, it probably won't last forever. It's got a a limited lifespan and different conditions will also alter how it looks. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I am fascinated by this possibility of working in a way that goes against capitalism and of owning things. But at the same time, 
I like to collect other people's artwork when I can afford it. So I, I have some small sculptures and small um, ball-based works. Because there is a lot of joy, I think, in being able to have this connection with an artist who you've met or with an exhibition you've visited because you had such a strong emotional response to that um, relationship. And then to be able to bring some of that into your life, into your home, can be... Um, yeah, it can bring a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. Mm. So I, I I don't know. I guess I, I sort of am um, split a little bit on how I would respond to that personally. I think um, it's a bit fluid. Yeah. yeah. There's a tension there, which is wonderful. And also when you buy works to support others and to surround yourself with this um, aesthetic pleasure of some sort, it's different thing to owning, I think, to pure ownership. That's often... Um, there is some coldness in it, I guess. There is something yes, different in the thing that you are describing. I can't fully pin it down what it is, but it is. There is some difference yes. there. I understand what you're saying. Mm. I actually, um, uh, in my twenties, I worked in an auction house for a little while, and that was a very interesting experience in terms of seeing a side of the art world that I wouldn't otherwise experience, and people's relationship to the artwork that they were buying and selling and collecting. And it is quite different, I think, from the art world that I tend to be part of and the artist communities that I'm part of as an artist. Mm. Yeah, mm. there is, again, this flow of exchange that is um, quite amazing. I mean, there is yes. money involved because money is just the way we operate, but also it's beautiful when we can exchange works of art with each other. So it's not yes. even involving this monetary exchange, which ideally, uh, if the world could work like that, that would be um, something that I would find very pleasing. Um, yes. Another thing I like asking artists who work with impermanent materials or unstable works, as you call them, is uh, whether in this uh, type of practice there is a room for failure and mistake. <laughs> uh, yes, I think there's a lot of failure and mistakes and happy accidents. Uh, well, particularly working with the mushrooms, they will grow how they decide to grow. And it's taken me a long time to sort of understand the different elements that will affect how they grow because they're not like plants but they do like to have a certain amount of light and airflow and a moisture so sometimes the mushroom sculptures haven't done what i've wanted them to do i had a beautiful growing mushroom work in um, the no-show exhibition at carriage works and um, it was great. These mushrooms were growing in this sort of um, bark vessel and the timing was just a bit off they um, had this beautiful big flush just when I delivered the work to carriage works, but then it was like another week before the exhibition opened and um, they had started to dry out and die and shrivel up. And I had a conversation with the installers and curators about them not being in direct sunlight, but there's a lot of skylights at carriage works mm -hmm. and um, it was very hot. It was in February and they just... They didn't want to grow anymore, <laughs> so they all started to dry out and die, which wasn't my initial intention. I had wanted them to be growing and be this sort of rich flush, but um, it was a bit of a, I don't know if it was a failure. I think it was a bit more of it was just, just went in a direction I didn't really anticipate so much. I thought they'd sort of grow a bit more before they died at the end of the exhibition, but they died pretty much at the beginning, and they still looked very interesting because they're such strange forms, and they 
speak so directly, I think, to sort of an aging process and this sort of decay and drying out and wrinkles and all of these things. So I'm not sure it was a failure, but it, it did certainly go in a direction that wasn't quite what I intended. Yeah, but then it keeps in check this ego part of the practice which is about following an intention and so it came back to this other part of your practice which is about giving agency to the materials yeah and in that way if that is the ultimate gain of the practice in a way to listen to and allow materials to take charge that is why i'm questioning whether there is a room for failure because failure in a way is incorporated in the process itself yeah, and you yeah, call, you that, call it happy accident. Which, yeah, yeah, perhaps um, failure is too much of a sort of uh, binary term. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's certainly this way that the materials will do whatever they want to do, regardless of the various other conditions I try to put in place. I often try and talk about this sort of work as co-creative. Mm-hmm. So I'm creating with the materials and with the surroundings, with the atmosphere of the place that they're either being created in in the studio or being exhibited in in the gallery. And this sort of co-creation brings a number of different elements into the relationship of this work coming into being. And it it does um, take a step away from me being able to direct and control everything and to just sort of trust in the agency of the materials and, and allowing them to behave however they choose to behave in those conditions. Mm. You're on ESED Radio 89.7 FM. I am speaking to Aris Kat Fries, and we are talking about her practice in general, but also about her work, Walkdown in Lockdown, which you can experience as part of the Spirit of 21, which is an online spin-off Cementa festival. And in order to register for this event or find out more about it, you can go to cementa.com.au and click on the name Kat Fries in one of the boxes that you will find on this page. Cat Cementa usually takes place in uh, Candace, uh in real life as we call it, uh, not online. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the Spirit Of is um, an online iteration uh, because the organizers didn't just want to cancel the event but do something that they could have done uh, in this lockdown period. But next year in May we will have the actual Cementa Festival which will take place in Candace and you will have an installation there. Yes, I will. I'm creating an installation there. It's going to be an outdoor installation made of bamboo and rope. And it's going to be, um, I guess, a, a reflection on various efforts to rehabilitate spaces for wildlife to be able to nest and exist and grow. Um, there's a beautiful project in Cape Two Valley near Candos called the Regent Honey Eater rehabilitation project and they're planting lots of trees for this species of bird the region honey eater which is um i think it's endangered and the process of sort of rehabilitating areas with particular types of native trees isn't just beneficial to the birds but also to all sorts of other creatures um different types of possums and reptiles and insects all sorts of different creatures in the biodiversity benefit from spaces being rehabilitated. So I was thinking about this project and 
they came back to something, a passion of mine, which is bees and insects. And I've done a lot of work with bees and beeswax and looking at how important insects are in biodiversity across the world, really. And something that I've been very interested in in Australia is the native bees in Australia and different ways that people are trying to create habitat for them. And there's a, a lovely process uh, where you can collect bamboo and different types of straw and things to make a bee hotel and make a space for the native Australian native bees to nest. Mm. So um, basically I'm making a sculpture that's a bit like a big bee hotel. It's also going to look a bit like a series of ladders. So it's going to be a little bit about finding a safe space, I think. It's called Refuge and um, it's going to be a series of bamboo ladders which are tied together to a tree and some of them will be altered so that the native bees can nest in them. Mm. And where do you work on these projects? Do you have a studio of your own you set up? Yes, I'm yeah. very lucky to have a studio in Marrickville. Mm. So um, that's where I'm currently working on this project and I had a lot of well, I had, I had a cluster of bamboo growing just near my, my home, which I had to cut down. So I was like, oh, I, I cut it down thinking, I don't know what I want to do with this bamboo, but I'm sure I'll come up mm. with something. And um, eventually I was like, oh, that would be perfect for Samantha and Candos to make this project about um, Australian native bees. And a friend of mine lives in Mudgee. And she is very involved in a Mudgy Bee project where they're researching a whole lot of native bees. And a lot of that involves walking around and looking at any insects that you see on plants or flowers and taking a photo of them. So it's this beautiful project of really just being very attentive to your surroundings. Mm. And speaking about spaces to work and create work, you also facilitate and are a founder of a residency project as far as I'm aware called Gunya. Is that how I pronounce it? Um, I usually pronounce it Ganya, Ganya. but um, there's a few different pronunciations. It's in Port Stevens on Waramai land, and the language, the indigenous language there is Gapeng, mm -hmm. but um, the term Ganya or Gunya is used quite widely in a number of different indigenous languages, First Nations languages, and it means a resting place or a place of shelter, oh, which is quite a lovely name I think for uh, this wooden house that's like a place of retreat and um, my parents and their friends built this house together in the early 80s and it's still shared by eight families but it's not used very much in winter so I've been able to set up an artist residency program there so we have some artists going up every year to stay there and um, they all seem to have a very lovely time it's in the bush overlooking the water and it's quite quiet and you feel like you're away from the world in mm. a sense. Mm. Yeah, it's a quite a special uh, privilege and, and opportunity to be on a residency. It really helps you develop your projects. And how long does it take, this residency? Is it set uh, timing that every artist gets um, the same yes, time? Yes, it's quite a short one. It, it's 10 days. Okay. And that was just because um, the property is used by a number of different people. It's not just for the artist residency. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it is interesting how kind of immersed in the, in the place and in the time artists can get within 10 days I've myself I've done quite a few different residencies and usually I like to do them for about four to six weeks but really it feels like any length of time can be productive especially if you don't have to produce 
a particular mm. outcome if you're just there to pursue your own interests and um, develop your own ideas. Yes. And is there a way, uh, is there an application process or a way for people to apply to this residency? Uh, well, like so many things this year, it's all been um, very challenging with the COVID restrictions. I'd say about 70% of the artists this year have had to be postponed and rescheduled to next year. Mm -hmm. So at this stage, I'm just going to have to roll over those artists and we're not going to be able to do an open call this time around, which I, I feel quite sad about, but it's just... Um, it's also not really worth the effort for people to put in applications if there's only one or two possibilities of being selected. Exactly. So we will definitely do another open call this time next year. Hopefully life will be more back to normal in terms mm. of people being able to travel and move around as we were used to doing yes. by that time. Mm. Yeah. And there's um, there's a link on Facebook, um, Ganya, G-U-N-Y-A-H artist residency and there's also an instagram account ganya artists mm -hmm. and your own personal instagram account is kath k-a-t-h underscore freeze f-r-i-e-s great so if anyone while listening uh, is uh, interested in having a look at cat freeze work you can go to her instagram account uh, there is also a website that you can have a look at it's catfreeze.com we are slowly coming uh, to the end of this conversation. I'm so happy to have an opportunity to talk to you about your interests um, and uh, I wish you all the luck with your coming project, Walk Down in Lockdown, which is happening on 15th and 16th of October, which is end of this week. Before I finish, I also want to ask you about another thing that's coming up for you and that's, I believe, in December this year. You are co-curating and exhibiting with Buddhist artists in a gallery space in Lane and exhibition is titled Presence of Mind. Yes, I'm very, very excited about this project. It's been a very long time in the works. Um, I met the director and curator at Gallery Lane Cove, Rachel Kang, back in 2018, and uh, we were talking about another exhibition, and she said, oh, and, you know, how interested would you be in um, doing an exhibition with Buddhist artists? It's like, yes, I would love to do that. I've been trying to find a way to do that. And Rachel is also Buddhist, and she's from Singapore. So she has been in touch with some artists in Singapore who are Buddhist and some artists in Australia, and I've reached out to some artists in Australia who I know are Buddhist, so it's going to be a really wonderful meeting of minds, I think, around this um, experience of how Buddhist practice relates to art practice and particularly the mindfulness practice of meditation and the focus of being mindful mm. when you're making artwork and in how that sort of resonates with how you live. Wonderful. And is this in December? Was I correct? Is yes, it yeah. is in December. It's going to open on the 10th of December and go to the end of January. And we have a number of fabulous artists in it, including Lindy Lee mm -hmm. and Nell and Lachlan Warner and Cindy Chan. And from Singapore, we've got Jason Lim and Alicia Neo. And Shirley So and Jeremy Chu. Oh. And we've been doing a digital residency online with Alicia Neo. So a number of the artists from Australia have been joining Alicia online. We're doing about five 
sessions and we're doing a collaborative project with Alicia called Care Index. So it's been um, as much as we wanted to be able to have a host our Singaporean artists over here in Sydney, that obviously hasn't been possible, mm. but to be able to pivot and change and to do a, a digital residency online and have this connection. Because mm. I think sort of one of the richest things of a group exhibition is the relationships that can be formed between the artists. So it's, it's been quite exciting to find ways to make this happen, even though we haven't been able to meet up in actual physical real space. Mm. That's wonderful to hear about this process of putting together a group exhibition and connecting artists who are part of it. Is this also because their works are responding to each other's work or it was more just to create a sense of collectivity between them? I think it was very much a sense of all of the artists are very interested in mindfulness and embodied practices and in how different ways that artists who are Buddhist have things in common. So I think when people come to the exhibition, there's going to be a great deal of diversity in the artworks there. There's going to be some video works, some an AR work, there's going to be sculptures and paintings and installations. So I think in a sense they're all going to look quite different, but there's going to be quite a few underlining connections in terms of the artist's interest in the mindful process of making and more broadly Buddhism and the spiritual understandings and um, ethics and all of these other elements that, that will also connect the works. Mm. Well, I can't tell you how much I look forward to be able to go to the gallery. <laughs> it's, uh, just as you were oh, speaking wonderful. about it, uh, I'm realizing how excited I am to actually hear that these things are starting up again because it's been so long. But in the meantime, uh, we have a special thing that we can still do online and it's coming this Friday and Saturday. It is Spirit of 21 online festival, a spin-off Cementa festival. And Kat Fries, uh, who I'm currently talking to, is having her project there. It's called Walk Down in Lockdown. Kat, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us during Arts Monday on Eastside Radio. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. So you're on ECD Radio 89.7 FM. Uh, this show is slowly coming to the end. We have another well, we have another 20 minutes. After that, we'll hear from uh, Pino Scuro and Syncopatico. And if you would like to find out more about the artist Cat Freeze, with whom I have just been talking to, you can go onto her website. It's catfreeze.com. That's K-A-T-H-F-R-I-E-S.com.
Oh, oh, oh.